All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to the JontoCast, a monthly podcast on early American history. I'm Ken Owen, an assistant professor of colonial and revolutionary American history at the University of Illinois Springfield. And this month on the podcast, we're going to be discussing the man, the myth, and the legend that is Alexander Hamilton. And in an unprecedented Junto cast, we, I'm joined by four other guests to help us discuss his life and times. First up, a man who's currently contacting his friends in the military to help launch a coup. I'm talking, of course, of Michael Hatton. Hello, Ken. Michael is a PhD candidate at Yale University. Joining me and Michael is a man who is currently sending draft legislation to his loyal allies in the Senate. I'm talking of Roy Rogers. Howdy, Ken. Roy is a doctoral candidate in history at the Cooney Graduate Centre. Next up, we have someone who is hard at work writing denunciatory pamphlets about John Adams and why he's unfit to be president. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Nora Slanimsky. Thank you. And Nora is a doctoral candidate in history at the CUNY Graduate Centre and a writing fellow at Lehman College. Last but not least, we have a dual expert who is currently getting all her seconds in line to make sure that she's well supported. Uh, thanks for joining us, Joanne Freeman. Happy to be here. Uh, Joanne is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University and author of Affairs of Honour, National Politics in the New Republic. And she's also edited the Library of America edition of Alexander Hamilton's papers. Before we get going into a full discussion of Hamilton's life and times, we thought it might be helpful to have a brief introduction to who Hamilton was. And Nora, I believe you were going to kick us off. Sure. I mean, it feels pretty wildly presumptuous to be doing this when you have Joanne Freeman also on your podcast, but I will give it a very quick and succinct stab. Uh, Hamilton was born in the Caribbean and he immigrated to New York Sometime in his teenage years, probably late teens, where he began to study at King's College, which is now Columbia University. However, the American Revolution disrupted his educational plans, and he enlisted and shortly rose to prominence as an aide-de-camp to George Washington, where after his political and legal career took off at the end of the Revolution, he became a famous attorney, a famous journalist, and the first Secretary of the Treasury, where he, for all intents and purposes, established sort of America's financial system. Uh, but he had sort of an Icarus-esque fall, I would say, after the death of Washington and ended up dying in a famous duel. And that pretty much sums up. <laughs> Podcast <laughs> over. The end. <laughs> all right. I, I, I noticed careful avoidance of mentioning Aaron Burr by name. <laughs> oh, he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. <laughs> that kind of recognition, please. Thanks for that, Nora. And clearly one of the difficulties that we're going to have on the podcast today is making sure that we don't talk too much, given how many events Hamilton touched on during his long and storied career. Uh, but perhaps... 
we need to start off by thinking about his origins in a little bit greater detail. Um, Joanne, would you be able to help us out on that? Sure. Uh, he pretty much had tough origins, and that's true even in comparison with um, most of the other founding folk. Uh, he was born uh, on the island of Nevis in the West Indies. Uh, he was poor. He was illegitimate, and not long into his life, he was orphaned. Um, and he uh, basically worked uh, at a shipping company, was apprenticed uh, at a shipping company office uh, on the island of St. Croix and managed to get himself off of that island um, really through his writing talents. He impressed people on the island so much with an essay that he wrote about a hurricane that they put together a charitable fund and sent him to the North American colony so he could get an education. What, what, one of the things that really clearly stands out from Hamilton's origins is, as you say, how humble they are compared to most of the other nationally and internationally famous figures of the of the revolution. I mean, how significant are the humble origins of Hamilton in explaining some of his later political activities? Well, they certainly mattered. Um, one of the ways that you know that is that they were mentioned again and again when people were trying to slap at him. Um, it, it left him vulnerable. He didn't have a family to fall back on, particularly before he was married. Um, he, you know, he's what one might have called, and, and this is an 18th century term, a mushroom gentleman <laughs> who came from nowhere. You know, he sort of sprouted up out of nowhere. And who was he? And where did he come from? And what was he? And um, I think because he was that sort of person who was literally out on his own trying desperately to make something of himself and really starting from nothing, um, that had a big impact certainly on the way he treated pretty much everything in his life and certainly had a big impact on uh, his political career and what he did in that career. Right. I mean, it's kind of interesting because there is that famous John Adams quote, right, where he refers to Hamilton as the bastard brat of a Scotch peddler. Benjamin Franklin wasn't illegitimate, but he too came from very humble origins, certainly compared to many other revolutionary political figures. Yet you rarely see his background referred to as negatively as Hamilton's was, even when Franklin was engaged in political conflicts in Pennsylvania before the revolution. No, it's true. The illegitimacy made the difference. Um, and, and he even, Hamilton even, um, in the later 1790s, writes a letter trying to refute what he calls sort of, you know, humiliating charges that people are making. And what he's referring to is, is you know, that his father was nobody and he's nobody. And that's really what he's worried about trying to refute. D dare I suggest that Franklin is also somewhat better at avoiding making enemies than <laughs> Hamilton as well. You think? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that perhaps if, um, if, if Hamilton had been able to direct his energies more into a Junto-style organisation <laughs> rather than um, some of his fiery broadsides at political opponents, that might have helped explain why there's a difference in the way that Hamilton is received than, than, than Franklin. <laughs> uh, he certainly, Hamilton, uh, Franklin certainly was more diplomatic. Uh, that's in terms that's of an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a generational thing, right? You know, 
Franklin died before the politics of the New Republic became as overheated as they did during the, the sort of high point of Hamilton's career. And and if you're going to make enemies, Quakers probably aren't bad people to turn against. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that his origins, as we've been talking about them, sort of lent themselves to ambiguity. Y- yes. Right. And that was something that ultimately figured into the way that he related to people and the way that other people related to him. Yeah, they were a vulnerability and a sore point um, and something that he felt he had to overcome. One other aspect that makes him unique amongst the founding group of most celebrated figures is the fact that he's not born and didn't initially grow up in the 13 colonies that end up declaring independence. Um, we've mentioned, obviously, the the Scottish insult that Adams directed him. But to what extent does his Caribbean background have an impact on the way that he's viewed in politics later in life? Well, number one, uh, compared to the other founders that we remember, uh, he didn't. He lacked a natural political constituency that people like Jefferson or Adams or uh, Washington had in their in their or Jay had in their in their in their home states. So this sort of left Hamilton a little bit more off in the breeze when things turned sour for him later in life. And I I think also. Um... You know, this is this is probably pretty obvious, but still, it had a big impact on his politics. Um, he didn't see the world through a colony slash state outlook in, to the degree that others did in those North American colonies. He didn't have a problem thinking about chopping up colonies or eliminating states or whatever he was thinking about. He didn't have that kind of emotional attachment uh, to individual colonies and states that others would have. And, and certainly we'd see something like that in the Whiskey Rebellion, where he's got a very dismissive attitude towards Western Pennsylvania as one sixtieth of the entire country. I can't remember the exact proportions, but he's he's very dismissive of their claims to any sort of special political treatment. And I think that's one of the interesting things that's come out of this discussion, that there's actually some opportunities for that as well. It means he's thinking about issues on a very different level from even someone like Madison, who's Although, when he thinks in a nationalist way, it's very clearly a Virginia nationalist's way. He actually at one point said something along the lines of, if only all the states were the same size as Connecticut. (laughs) 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 So, as, as Nora mentioned earlier, Hamilton's education is interrupted, but... And it's always difficult when a pesky revolution gets in the way of your education. But this was clearly the the making of Hamilton and his emergence as a national figure owes an awful lot to his actions during the war. Roy, would you like to say some more on Hamilton's military actions during the Revolutionary War? Well... Hamilton has really interesting origins, right? He starts in a, in a very small position, and then his sort of success during the Battle of uh, New York and the, and the famous retreat sort of leads to him catching the attention of his superiors, which eventually leads to him ending up on Washington's staff for much of the war uh, until, uh, until roughly around Yorktown when he left Washington's per- personal service. But what's important, I think, about the war in the context of Hamilton's life is basically it's where he made his name and gained sort of 
most of, I think, say, the political capital that he cashed in on the rest of his life. It's where he made the social networks that he drew on to do his rise. I mean, it's where he developed his personal relationship with Washington, who obviously would take him into the into the cabinet with him when he became president. It's where he made some of the best friends of his life. It's sort of where Hamilton sort of, he really is one of the figures of, I think, all of the founders that we remember that sort of purely makes his reputation in the war and sort of rides that for the rest of his life to his uh, greater successes and, and trouble. I wish there was a war. I was just going to say, yeah, right. <laughs> the war was what he was waiting for. The war was definitely what he was waiting for. The, the first letter we know of that, that exists of his that was written when he was about 14 years old um, he's dying to get off of this island. He's dying to make something of himself. And the way that he thinks that's going to happen is, uh, as he puts it, quote, I wish there was a war. You know, so he, he knew that that was a way to, for him to hopefully, you know, elevate himself and win some glory on the battlefield and make a name for himself. And it's, it's really that assumption that that's a, a sort of quick and dirty way to make a name for yourself and, and win some reputation that made him so desperate throughout the war to have a moment of battlefield glory. He, he was dying for that moment when he could sort of prove himself in a dramatic way. Right. Well, I mean, he was initially asked to join the staff of Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox. Uh, as their aide-de-camp, and he rejected those opportunities because he wanted to be on the battlefield where he could make a name for himself. Ultimately, when George Washington asked him to become his aide-de-camp, that was basically an offer that he couldn't refuse. Uh, But he very much wanted to be on the battlefield where he could earn his reputation and fame in the 18th century sense of the word. And and dare I say, that's a very British attitude compared to other colonial attitudes as well, but... This would be the way that ambitious young men in back in Britain would try and prove their worth as well. Um, I think it speaks interestingly to that side of Hamilton's character and something that continues throughout much of the rest of his his political career. I hope we get to I hope we get to talk a little bit about his responses to the Alien and Sedition Acts and his yearning for military action at that point as well. Right. Well, it's not really until the end of the war that he gets to do that. He participates in the Battle of New York in 1776, and he's at the Battle of Trenton at the end of the year, participating in the famous crossing of the Delaware. It's after that that he becomes Washington's aide-de-camp. And he plays a very important role in that position in terms of military administration and aiding Washington. But it's not until the last major battle of the war at Yorktown in 1781 when he leaves his position as aide-de-camp to command his own unit. And he apparently was quite reckless in doing so during the siege of Yorktown. He clearly, he was like, this is it. This is my moment. He, um, among the things he did was drill his troops in, in full view of the British, who assumed that it must be a trap, because who would do such a thing? <laughs> so he really, for better and worse... Um, milled that moment for all it was worth. Um, and then, yeah, you know, stormed a redoubt and sort of gloriously, you know, plunged in ahead of his men and he had his moment. So talking of reckless <laughs> decision-making, um, another feature of Hamilton's career at the end of the Revolutionary War is the conspiracy at Newburgh. Well, well his recklessness was not limited to the battlefield. Right. He's been indirectly implicated in, in the conspiracy at Newburgh in 1783. So this was 
over a year and a half after Yorktown when the army is encamped at Newburgh, New York, and the soldiers were owed significant amounts of back pay by the Congress, and that back pay was not forthcoming, which led to a significant amount of unrest brewing in the ranks. And a few officers were involved in basically stoking the fire, and there was a plan afoot in which the soldiers would march down to Philadelphia and force the Congress to pay them, or they would seize the government. Now, the main reason Congress couldn't pay them was because Congress had no money, right? Because under the Articles of Confederation, it couldn't tax the citizens or force the states to give it money. And basically, the Congress could request the states give it money, but the states could choose to not comply. And this weakness of the Congress was a major sore spot among budding nationalists like Hamilton, who wanted a stronger uh, federal government. And so it appears that Hamilton was quite happy to encourage officers to fan the flames of discontent so the threat of a military coup could be used by Congress as political leverage to get the states to be more willing to comply with their fiscal requests, basically pay up or the army's going to take us over. And if I remember correctly, he wrote a letter to Washington hinting that Washington could take advantage of, of the idea that there was a threat you know, to really sort of get something done. And uh, Washington shut that down. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's definitely two things that I think we see as recurring themes that come out of our discussion there of, of Hamilton's connection to the Newburgh conspiracy, um, and one of which is clearly a nascent nationalism and the fact that he's thinking about the way that national government might be amended from a very early stage and is prepared to countenance action that will put some of those plans into place, even if that action is very direct. And, of course, the fact that this is a, a militaristic plan is also something that we see popping up again and again in, in Hamilton's later career um, and his his willingness to countenance military force as a means of sorting out um, conflicts and potential crises in government is something that will reappear in various different hues during the conflict of the 1790s. But of course, we can't get to the conflict of the 1790s unless we talk about Hamilton at the Constitutional Convention and his role, very prominent role, within the ratification debates in New York as well. In some ways, I set up Hamilton as a bit of a caricature when I'm teaching about him, partially because I'm a flippant Brit that likes poking fun at leading political figures. Um, but there's, there's something curious about the way that Hamilton engages with the Constitutional Convention, certainly for someone who makes his, his name... Um, as one of the key figures in the first government that's set up under that constitution. So why is it that Hamilton is such a peripheral figure at the Constitutional Convention, but later becomes so important in the move to get the constitution ratified? I mean, it, I just, <laughs> this, is just, this is just a quick aside off the record, but, but it's because he was a lunatic at the convention. <laughs> But he was only a lunatic. Is an eight-hour speech really a little presence? That sounds like a very lengthy one. Or was it six? Well, but that was his. That was I think it was a six-hour speech. But that was precisely because he was outvoted 
his vote didn't count. He was outvoted by the rest of the New York delegation. So there's this guy who's hammering away for a stronger national government. And then finally you get the convention and basically his vote doesn't count. So he gives the this, you know, famous six-hour speech in which he presents his own plan of government. Um, and I think that was partly a, a showboating moment. You know, I think that was partly, okay, well, I, I may not be able to do much, but here, you know, <laughs> I'm going to show you what I think. And, you know, I mean, I suppose some people suggest that um, maybe he was give, offering an extreme plan uh, so that it would make Madison's less extreme plan look good. And that's quite possible. It's also quite possible that he just wanted to be out there saying what he thought and at least getting it on the record. So um, he proposed a permanent executive, an executive for life. During good behavior. Right. And the same for the Senate. And he also proposed that the federal government appoint the state governors who would then have veto powers over the state legislatures. So what he was proposing at the convention, especially when you think about it in the context, was Far off to the extreme. <laughs> I was going to say over the roof, out the door, down the street, like <laughs> on another planet. From <laughs> Right, but that's exactly it. What he was proposing at the convention was so far from the realm of possibility and so far from what even the most nationalist members of the convention were willing to even entertain hypothetically. But it's not like Hamilton doesn't turn to extreme solutions at other times in his political career either. And I can certainly imagine how someone would get very frustrated in 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 the, in the context of Philadelphia in the summer of of 1787. It's it's frustrating enough sitting in sit, sitting in the archives with air conditioning in <laughs> In, in Philadelphia conditions, let, let alone having to listen to people who you think are sending the country on a path to, to rack and ruin if they don't get things sorted out effectively. I mean, just to be clear, I'm not saying that Hamilton didn't want the things he was talking about. He would have been over the moon to have that kind of federal control over state governments. So I'm not saying that he was exaggerating but that he was well aware of how extreme his positions were and that there was a rhetorical value there in that his extreme opinions made those of his nationalist colleagues seem more moderate. I think it's also important to note that his most extreme speech was given, if memory serves, early in the convention, which you can imagine Hamilton being locked out of the New York delegation and feeling, particularly in those early days, that this is just another wasted convention like the Annapolis convention. And he wants to get down on record his dream proposal, and and that is why he that the sort of frustrated pie in the sky turn comes because you know until the very end, you know, it's very easy for us, and this is when you teach the Constitution, right? It's very easy for us to see an inevitability in the Constitution, but even within the convention, up to the last minute. It could easily fall apart and be just like these other five or six attempts to fix the Confederation that had gone on. And Hamilton had been a part of since his time, you know, in the 1780s in uh, the, con uh, the Confederation Congress. I think that's the that's like the key point is it also Hamilton's constitution or his draft of the constitution rather makes a lot more sense looking at that period between 84 
and 87, or really and into 88. But the, the timeline of what would have prompted those measures, which certainly are, are very drastic in contrast, especially with what ultimately ends up becoming the Constitution, is sort of the states were, for all intents and purposes, incapable of functioning in the way that he wanted or thought that would be the healthiest way to function. He saw 13 countries, I think, and that was not going to be sustainable in, in terms of his vision of structuring a strong unified nation or even sort of a strong functioning or healthily functioning economy. So it starts to make sense why he would go to those measures, not, again, saying they're particularly ideal measures, because clearly they're not. But I think that that those preceding years. Right. And we should mention that a full scan of the draft constitution that he submitted to the convention in June of 1787 is available online through the New York Public Library. So you can see and read the actual draft itself. And we'll have a link to it on our website. Right. With all the cross outs and everything in his notes. It's amazing. I want to add one last thing before we. We've, we advance him in his career, and that is – it's just also worth noting because it haunted him until the end of his days. Um, he did say during his grandstanding speech um, that the British government was the finest government on the face of the earth, mm-hmm. and that was quoted back at him forever. And there's this really f- humorous letter written in the last few years of his life in which once again someone's asking him what he said at the convention, and he says something like, you know – I thought the doors were closed so we could kind of blue sky, you know. I thought we were supposed to be saying whatever we thought. I didn't think this was going to be, you know, hanging over my head for the rest of my life. Right. Hamilton has the great – his reputation suffers from the fact that the most prominent memories of the Constitutional Convention were written by, at the time, one of his intimate friends and later one of his most intense political enemies. So we always do have to remember that we're reading Hamilton this period through James Madison. So I think that what comes out of the discussion of the convention and sort of in the context of the discussion so far is that politically and socially his humble origins were problematic for him and something that was certainly used by his opponents to attack him. But at the same time... You know, it should be noted that Hamilton himself was quite prone to what we would today call committing unforced errors. <laughs> yes, if you if you wanted to stick to beat Hamilton with, he'd be more than happy to hand it to you himself all, a lot of the time. <laughs> Which we'll get to when we talk about Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> but if Hamilton doesn't help his political reputation by his admiration for the British system of government, he certainly bolsters his historical legacy in the ratification debates with his writing of the the Federalist Papers. And indeed, as I say, I like poking fun at Hamilton in class, but when it comes to reading some of his essays in the Federalist Papers, um, I think they're really well worth rereading just to see how much his nationalist way of thinking about the political system really does integrate a large number of different areas of um, of political economy and, and shows how systematically he's thinking about national development. So why, for someone who clearly harbours at least some ideas that are considered to be very extreme, why are Hamilton's ideas in The Federalist so persuasive? There are a couple of reasons for that. I think two are. Certainly, he was very, and Madison, uh, and 
poor John Jay during his brief shining moment, um, they were aggressively trying to allay fears. So it wasn't just promoting the Constitution, but it was um, calming people down from what all of the various threats that they thought might be held within the, a stronger national government. I also think another thing that they did in those essays that was effective was at various times they suggested threats um, or, or problems that would happen without a stronger government that may or may not have been true, but certainly were rhetorically <laughs> effective in the essays. <laughs> Right. Well, it's key to remember what those essays were. I think a lot of people today think of the Federalist Papers as a legal text that the Supreme Court draws on, but they really were propaganda pieces. Yeah, I teach them, um, or when I teach them, I, I tend to call them a big commercial advertisement for the Constitution. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in some sense, he's trying to persuade people by convincing them that the Constitution that the convention ended up with was not nearly as bad or had not gone as far as the one that he himself had proposed. <laughs> I think what it's also, and this could be my own sort of, because of my own particular way of, of which I've been reading them, especially the past few years for, for research reasons, is that there is also, and, I, and you see, I think, thought, the thought, or especially amongst the individual writers, evolve, right? From, the, from, the, from Federalist One to the very end, Madison, it sometimes contradicts himself, and Hamilton, sometimes they don't necessarily always line up. You see that they are sort of working through perhaps their own thoughts about this process and their own concerns about what exactly the Constitution is going to look like. And in that, I think it shows to an extent somewhat of a, of a statement that while Hamilton certainly does really admire the British Constitution, the British government, it is not a wholesale copy. Right. It is not going to be an identical thing that 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 sort of problems and this speaks to Joanne's comment, too, about allaying fears that issues that there, that existed in the British Constitution and sort of in the British management of the colonies, for lack of a better word, were not going to be superimposed onto this new constitution, that something different was going to happen. And in working out these kinks in these essays and talking about these problems in these essays, they are saying that this can be a break. And, and there's also a subtext to it that there's a lot that's still to be written regardless of what's in the Constitution. And that actually, if you try and make the Constitution bend to any particular vision of how the Republic should develop, that means that you're just going to have periodic crises. Um, I mean, as much as it pains me to talk in such laudatory manner about Hamilton's ideas, I think where he, <laughs> where, he, where he writes so clearly in Federalist 35 of the dangers of trying to protect the interests of any particular group or to deny the interests of any particular group in the Constitution, I think that really does help explain why the Constitution is the framework around which American government has been built rather than the sole machine of American government. And there's something that, yeah, I, I really don't want to sell his, his ideas short here. Sure, context is important, but there's some, there's some really perceptive stuff that he, he includes in his essays that is worth taking on its own terms as well. Of course, Hamilton 
himself becomes one of the main players in building that architecture around the framework of the Constitution, and in his role as Secretary of the Treasury has a monumental impact on the way that politics develops in the 1790s, and is a key player in pretty much any political controversy that springs up during that first decade. It's probably most helpful, I think, if we talk about um, the financial issues that Hamilton's dealing with as Secretary of the Treasury. Um, Perhaps if we could start just by outlining the challenges that Hamilton is trying to address when when he first takes office. Well, Hamilton's overarching goal is to effectively create a new national economy. And to do that, there are a few issues that he uh, tries to address. The first is the issue of the state and federal debts from the revolution. Right. So the states had borrowed significant amounts of money to wage war. And now those loans were coming due. So dealing with that debt was a major issue, which he wanted to solve by getting the federal government to assume all of the state's debts. And his other major issue is getting the federal government involved in actively shaping the economy, much as the British government had done earlier in the 18th century. He wanted the government to help foster the growth of manufacturing through investment. And so dealing with the debt and with establishing the government as having a role to play in economic development were two key issues for him at this point. So let's address that question of the debts directly, because I think it's one of the things that might seem to the uninitiated quite strange about Hamilton's actions, that he's, he's incredibly keen on accumulating debt under the auspices of the federal government. And certainly in austerity-driven times, that doesn't seem to be something that modern governments are very keen on. So, so why does Hamilton think that accumulating or assuming debt at the federal level is something that's going to lead to the growth of America? Why, why, why is he so keen on this part of his financial plan? What gives everyone a stake in the new government? It it gives states whose debts are assumed a stake in the new national government. It gives this class of of lenders a a stake in the national government. It gives this newly national government a sort of – it gives it leverage within the economy that that the Confederation Congress never really had. And and Hamilton – I mean, Hamilton, you just look at the British example and look at things like the Bank of of England and Parliament's sort of strong – economic role that it could play. And the, the, the problem for Hamilton was that the Confederation Congress never really was able to achieve that leverage. But the Constitution, to him, gave the new national, the government a way to establish that. And the debt was really the only available option to him, particularly to do it rapidly. He wanted to get everyone on the page with the government ASAP. And the debt, which was already clearly a crisis that almost everyone, even critics of Hamilton like Madison in Congress knew that the debt was going to be was a problem this was his opportunity and Hamilton was a sort of political figure who if you gave him an opportunity he was going to take it right and there's also an international aspect to the debt so if the federal government assumes the debts and actually services that debt that is pays the interest on those debts then that fosters the foreign perception of the strength of the government right and that's actually uh, One thing I wanted to throw in about this as well, and that is totally related to what you just said, and that is constantly in in thinking about and writing about his his financial plan, the, the idea that he keeps coming back to is credit. And what's really interesting about that to me is obviously that's a really rich 
word, <laughs> no pun intended, but I mean, <laughs> there, there are a lot of meanings in that word, right? And so on the one hand, he's really talking about credit in a very conventional sense, but he's also talking about reputation and trustworthiness. Um, and, and that's also a part of what he, um, in some ways, is literally trying to buy with the financial plan that he's setting in motion, which I always think is interesting because, of course, credit reputation um, obviously is so big a part of his own life as well, his, his concerns for his own credit in that sense. And it's, I think that's, that's, yes, every ditto to everything everyone's saying. And I think it's very telling that sort of once, once the constitution goes into effect and Congress is meaning it's, it's the report on public credit, right? That's, that's one of the sort of the first big moves in, in the financial plan is submitting to Congress a report on public credit. And that's also, I think, telling that it's it's designed for sort of, I think, in the sort of creation of a, of a cohesive public or in a creation of sort of a more nationalized, unified identity. Right. And the debt goes hand in hand with the manufacturing aspect. So if the federal government is going to play a role in actively shaping the development of the economic sector, then the federal government needs credit worthiness and it needs to appear strong in the eyes of, of potential investors. And that's how... In Hamilton's plan, the debt and the manufacturing, the credit, are all interrelated. So talking of how things are interrelated in Hamilton's financial plan, the Bank of the United States clearly becomes one of the major political issues of the new government, um, as if assumption of state debts hadn't been controversial enough. Hamilton decides to ramp up the level of political debate a notch by um, publicly supporting and developing the idea of the creation of a national bank. Um, why does that become such a touchstone of political debate? And why is that so crucial in the development of parties in the 1790s? Right. Well, in part, Hamilton's economic plan is based on the assumption that the Constitution does actually give the federal government the right to do these things that he wants it to do. And the answer to that question is not nearly cut and dry in the 1790s. There are, of course, competing interpretations of what exactly the defined role of the federal government is in this respect. And fundamentally, how you interpret the Constitution. You know, is it mm -hmm. is it That's a limit absolutely. to what you can do or is it a road to what you can do? You know, I mean, um, Jefferson's thinking of it as a limiting device and Hamilton is thinking of it as an enabling device. Right, right. I mean, absolutely. For, for Jefferson, there's also this a sort of urban versus rural dynamic at work, right? And that dynamic runs throughout their conflicts, of course. I mean, in terms of the bank, Jefferson was highly skeptical of aiding, you know, the interrelationships between the government and the speculators and financiers who called stock jobbers, among other things. That, that's one of the things he <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, Jefferson was quite wary of getting the government uh, in bed with these stock jobbers up in New York. Remember, these are the same speculators who, during the early 1790s, were buying up bonds and promissory notes that had been given to soldiers who were owed back pay uh, from the Congress and to citizens who'd had their property seized to help supply the army. 
And based on this assumption that uh, under Hamilton's proposed plan, the federal government would eventually pay these notes off at face value, these speculators went around buying them up for pennies on the dollar because they had information about Hamilton's plan and its possibilities for being implemented that the average farmer uh, or former soldier didn't. And that, of course, was one of the reasons why uh, Jefferson Madison fought against assumption of the debts uh, and the plan, because they knew that the soldier and farmers were going to get screwed and the speculators would get rich at their expense and at the expense of the federal government. And ultimately, the, the debate over the bank is part of that same long-running dynamic. Yeah, I mean, the, the question of who benefits is is clearly a, a really important one. And I'm, I'm glad that you've spoken up for the, the poor oppressed soldiers of the... <laughs> that's what I do. Of, of, <laughs> yeah, uh, of, of the militia, because that's really important within the controversies about assumption as well. I mean, I think Hamilton is probably ultimately vindicated that having speculators have a financial stake in the success of the new government is going to be a source of stability. But at the same time, there are very clear losers from this situation as well. And if we were using modern terms, the optics of building a political coalition on the back of merchants and commercial speculators at the expense of those who were actually out in the field fighting really is something that, that lends itself to inspiring people to mobilise politically. Um, and I think that when we, we tend to, you know, certainly in textbooks, there's this idea that it's a Hamiltonian-Jeffersonian conflict, but I think there's something that's, that's much richer by exploring the, the direct interests that are involved as well. Part of what happens as a result of Assumption and the bank bill, um, ultimately it feels to those who do not like those parts of Hamilton's plan, I mean Jefferson, Madison, and and the like-minded, it feels to them like there are pieces of a puzzle falling into place. And so bit by bit, as this plan is sort of taking form, Jefferson, Madison, and the people who ultimately become Republicans are seeing what they suddenly are beginning to piece together as a very ugly picture that really is not what they want or or thought was intended. And so Hamilton's financial plan really lays the groundwork for the construction of what come to be partisan alliances or, or parties. One of the one of the things that always strikes me about the debate over the bank is how quickly it sets a precedent within American politics that this isn't just about policy, this is about what fundamentally should and shouldn't be allowed forever. You know, th- that's the difference between a policy debate and a constitutional debate. And I think we can see there how just the structuring of that debate leads to the the hardening of different groups. Um, but given that we know that, that these, these groups do develop in the way that they do, uh, what role specifically does Hamilton play in, in developing what becomes the Federalist Party? Well, in, in some ways, I mean, he certainly is the, the lightning rod of the period who, you know, pushes people either for or against him. Um, so just in polarizing people, um, both in his plan and, and in his manner, too, um, he plays a role in, in sort of pushing things in that direction. Um, but I think he also, um, in his political method, uh, he's pretty blunt and direct about 
pushing people to do the things he thinks they should do. You know, Hamilton, there's a reason why Hamilton likes military scenarios, because people have to listen to you when you're in charge (laughs) of troops. It's like a Hamiltonian paradise. Um, And, and, you know, I think in this period, um, he is not shy at all about, you know, calling together (laughs) the political troops uh, and saying, here's what has to happen. You do this and you do that. It's it's something that many find very alarming. Um, But as always, you know, he finds, in a sense, pragmatic and sort of brushes aside those sorts of um, concerns. Well, well, that's his behind the scenes role. And that's, of course, incredibly important. But he also played a role far out from behind the scenes, particularly in the press. Right. So supporting the first Federalist newspaper, the Gazette of the United States, and contributing pseudonymous pieces to newspapers that sort of help solidify these new party alliances and stoke the developing ideological divisions, right, to his own advantage. So, yeah, he was a key player in the the behind-the-scenes political maneuvering, but he was also engaged in political maneuvering and political persuasion uh, in the public sphere as well. And, 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 he, and he recognises the organising potential of government as well. I mean, when we look at those who become Democratic Republicans, the amount of infrastructure that they have to build outside of the government because of um, just just to oppose and to find some way of fighting back against the structures of government that Hamilton is able to manipulate and use to the support of his plans means that We've got to be appreciative of that for just how important it is in in structuring the party system. You know, Hamilton sees power as something to be used and seized. On a practical level, Hamilton also served a, an excellent role in insulating Washington from, as a, since Hamilton was a lightning rod, Washington himself was able to take one step removed from a lot of the more overheated political debates, even as over the course of his presidency, Washington was moving closer and closer to Hamilton's own politics. And, and you sort of will see this towards the end of uh, Washington's uh, life. And, but Hamilton himself, as the lightning rod creates a political space for Washington to continue to act and sort of stay above the fray in a way that it was really useful for the Federalists for, you know, through the rest of Washington's presidency, at least until Hamilton leaves office. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, in some sense, you could argue that Hamilton enabled Washington to at least appear uh, as disinterested as he tended to. I'm going back to what Joanne said in the substance of the party formation. She said Hamilton was especially good at polarizing people, and he's doing that both behind the scenes and in the press. And his polarizing agitation effectively helps turn uh, political differences over issues into more fundamental, hardline ideological differences over the very future of the republic. And that process and its outcome really goes a long way toward defining national politics in the 1790s and the first party system more generally. Let's be fair. One of the reasons that he can get away with all this behind the scenes is that he does have the world's greatest ever political fig leaf in the form of George Washington as well. I I think of William Maclay here and his his semi-treasonous fear that he he wishes that General Washington was in heaven because then he couldn't be <laughs> trotted out as cover for every anti-Republican scheme of, of Washington's favourites. And so Hamilton is very good in in his manipulation there. And it's a question I'd like to, to hear your thoughts on is, you know, to what extent does Washington become 
spellbound by Hamilton. Isn't there an extent to which later in life Washington really does go too far in support of Hamilton Hamilton's plans, whereas maybe earlier in his career he's done a good job of keeping some of the more fanciful or extreme ideas of Hamilton in check. Well, okay, I'll, I'll take a, I'll take a stab by blaming Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the reasons why Hamilton and and Washington converge is really because Hamilton was a fig leaf. Beginning with the banking crisis, as sort of Jefferson begins to become more and more disillusioned with Washington, and Madison also steadily becomes more and more disillusioned. They stop trying to manage Washington. They stop sort of trying to make their appeals directly to the president in a way that Hamilton never stopped. As much as their relationship, you know, like any good pseudo father and son relationship, it waxed and waned. But Hamilton always knew how that managing Washington, managing Washington's fears, Washington's anxieties was a great way to accomplish things. And Jefferson and Madison did that early in the Washington administration. But as they become steadily more and more disillusioned with the outcome of Washington, presidency, they stop doing that, which just creates more and more interpersonal political space for Hamilton to become the prominent person that Washington's leading to. And Washington's own fears of what the republic is going to be, particularly after he leaves office, get they, they, they really do merge that by the time Washington passes away during the quasi-war, Hamilton and Washington are operating you know, very close in a way that they weren't early, you know, at the beginning of the 1790s. I mean, it's also possible, and this is maybe perhaps a blasphemous statement, that, Ham that Washington just found Hamilton more persuasive, that he saw the way the nation was developing and he, or, or what he wanted the nation to be, and he simply found Hamilton's methods to be more in tune with what he thought was going to be successful. And I think that there, while there certainly obviously is a close relationship between Washington and Hamilton and an increasingly intensified or tense rather relationship between Jefferson and Washington, especially during the second term when sort of the Jeffersonian newspapers start really going after Washington. There, there's other, there's extenuating circumstances, I think, that also explain why Hamilton might be logistically a smarter or a more valuable source for Washington to follow. And I think it also shows the complications of regionalism in this period, right? That coming from Virginia versus coming from New York. And even though Hamilton is uniquely situated to not play into those more localized identities. Agreeing with you, it's it's worth noting, too, that being uh, at headquarters during the revolution was like a little nationalist making machine. Mm. Right. I mean, the right, people who right. were there came yeah. out of that experience thinking, you know, holy moly, like something something has to happen with this government. So they had that experience in common as well. But it's also worth noting that, um, I mean, I think along the lines of the idea that, um, you know, Washington ultimately, I think, found Hamilton's ideas more persuasive. When you look at um, Washington after he steps down from the presidency and read some of his letters, he's shockingly federalist. I mean, you really realize yes. the degree to which he was holding back when you look at him talking about, you know, what can we do to get the Virginia legislature more federalist? You know, I mean, when, when the first time I confronted those letters, I sort of wanted to gasp. <laughs> you know, it was like, Ugh, Washington, what happened? Uh, so that's that's true, too, is that, you know, he was actually trying to um, monitor himself. And you see the degree to which he was doing that when you look at him after the presidency. So. 
Hamilton leaves office in 1795, but that scarcely stops his involvement in national politics right through to the end of his life. One of the ways that he participates in politics is by continued feuding with John Adams. And one of the remarkable things about studying the, the Federalists in the late 1790s is how they managed to take moments of great party success and seem to lose them by factional infighting, um, particularly between Adams and Hamilton camps. Um, I think probably most significantly in Hamilton's desire to be at the helm of a new army that he can use to put down the seditious rebels who don't respect the national government enough and, you, and once again turn to military heroism as a way of saving the republic and instituting Hamilton right at the helm of, of these matters, um, but also in the rather remarkable and wonderful denunciatory pamphlet that he writes about the unfitness of John Adams to be president in 1800 before suddenly realising at the very end that if that's the case, Jefferson will win the election and that therefore he, he finishes a what is it, a 50-page pamphlet that, that attacks Adams in great detail by saying, but at the end of the day, he's still better than Jefferson, so you should probably vote for him. Um, and so Hamilton remains this polarising figure, um, but without Washington there, it's a much more complicated role, and it's certainly something that ends up destabilising his Federalist Party uh, a lot more than I, it helps, I think. And I think Hamilton's post-cabinet uh, experience really shows the point that I brought up earlier, that he, unlike Adams, he lacks a natural political constituency. He doesn't have anything to fall back on. And once he's out of institutional power, he finds it somewhat troubling and, 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 and weak to not have those resources to draw back on. He can't really draw on his relationship with Washington or the ways in which he's convinced Washington's policies. Once Adams is no longer listening to him, he has to work through the cabinet, and it creates a tension within the Federalist Party. It's a big pro structural problem with the Federalist Party that you know Adams has this natural political constituency in New England and this reputation as a leader of the, of the revolution that he tries to cultivate, but Hamilton is a lot of the internal political power within the party itself, and they sort of collide in a way I think actually the Jeffersonians end up learning from this when you see the sort of smooth transition from Jefferson to Madison and, and even to Monroe after, you know, 1800 is they sort of learn the problems of their political enemies that they had in the 1790s. I mean, and, and effectively, I mean, at, at some point, right, I mean, he, he ends up withdrawing and sort of, you know, going back to New York and, and throwing himself into his his law practice. What, not enough, not enough meat on that phone? <laughs> 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 so we've talked about the way that Hamilton finds himself in an unusual political situation in the late 1790s and that that leads him to make many ill-advised political moves and in some ways strategic blunders um, that place him in a much more difficult position within the Federalist Party than he's been before. Um, but we've, as we've discussed before, this is not something that is restricted to Hamilton's political life. And there are blunders elsewhere in Hamilton's life that cause trouble for him. Um, Michael, I know you've been waiting 
all evening to be able to, to weigh in on this one, so I'll hand over to you. Well, we would be remiss if we did not mention the Reynolds affair. So uh, in the early 1790s, Hamilton was approached by a young woman named uh, Maria Reynolds who told him that her husband had abandoned her and she needed money to get back to her family in New York. And being the chivalrous gentleman that he was, Hamilton agreed to give her the money and dropped it off personally to her where she was lodging. And he recounted the incident saying, quote, uh, some conversation ensued from which it was quickly apparent that other than pecuniary <laughs> consolation would be acceptable. That's my favorite line in the whole yeah. <laughs> So uh, Hamilton was quite happy to oblige with that non-pecuniary consolation, and an affair went on for a couple of years. And as it turned out, uh, Reynolds' husband hadn't abandoned her, but was actually in on this whole plot, which was to get his wife involved in an affair with Hamilton and then blackmail him for money by threatening to make the affair known to the public. So Hamilton uh, paid around $1,000 over uh, the few years that this is going on in the early 1790s. And the whole thing went awry initially when Reynolds' husband was arrested for speculation fraud regarding soldiers' back pay. And he sort of used the affair as a bargaining chip to get out of the charges. And he also implicated Hamilton in the fraud. So Hamilton was confronted by James Monroe about the charges. And he admitted the affair, but of course denied that he was involved in fraud. And he turned over uh, evidence letters regarding the affair to Monroe to prove his case. And Monroe believed him and agreed not to make any of this public, but he kept the evidence, which a few years later in 1797 uh, made its way into the hands of Thomas Jefferson, who had these fraud and corruption rumors published in a number of pamphlets by uh, James Callender to attack Hamilton. And, of course, Hamilton felt he had to uh, respond to save his reputation and public credit, and he did respond by publishing his own 95-page pamphlet called Observations on Certain Documents, where he denies all the charges and comes quite clean about the whole affair. So to speak. <laughs> Pretty much the embodiment of go big or go home. I, I love the way it's called Observations on Certain Documents and has the, mo the, most, the most general title imaginable and then 95 pages later. <laughs> well, the thing about it is, is that he's doing that in what is quite a desperate bid to save his public reputation. But in the end, it doesn't quite have the effect that Hamilton intended. Well, that's a, I mean, the argument, you know, I'm not a corrupt public figure. I'm right. an adulterer. Right. Is, you know, problematic, to say the least. <laughs> I mean, but he certainly thought that that would be persuasive or credit saving. But I mean, it's this distinction that we've talked about from the very beginning, which was his ambition and his desperate need to cultivate his public reputation. And this is a moment where that seems to be crumbling down around him. And this episode, I think, you know, really shows the lengths that he would go to to protect that public reputation. And what he was willing to sacrifice to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So talking of sacrifices to 
defend his personal reputation. Uh, this seems a natural way of bringing us to the end of Hamilton's life and his ill-fated duel with Aaron Burr. Uh, Joanne, do you want to lead on this? Why her? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I wonder. <laughs> so obviously, one of the most famous things about um, Hamilton is uh, the way he died, um, and you know, as becomes clear in the correspondence between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, uh, as they're moving their way towards that final confrontation, the two of them had been in competition and to some degree in, in political conflict pretty much from the time that the national government started. They both date the beginning of their controversies to the, the beginning of the national government. And Hamilton, I think, pretty consistently, um, although he got along with Burr personally, um, politically, he really fundamentally didn't trust the man. He, he saw him as an opportunist. He saw him as someone who had no um, principles holding him back. And um, in the 1790s, Hamilton says something along the lines of um, he considers it his religious duty to oppose right. Burr's career, <laughs> which that already you just know it's not going to end well as soon as you make that kind of a statement. <laughs> so, you know, Hamilton is true to that word. He's I mean, you know, he constantly sort of keeps leaping out to oppose what Burr is doing. And then finally, um, in 1804, Burr uh, is running to be mayor of New York. Hamilton, once again, is there doing his best to work against Burr's campaign. But this time, unlike many of the other times, there's actually something in writing um, in a newspaper that's a, a, a reflection on a conversation in which the person heard Hamilton say um, that Burr was unfit to hold the reins of government and that Hamilton said he could say a few more despicable things, but he won't say them because, well, you know how things get caught and told in public and put in newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> so Burr, you know, it, this is put into Burr's hand, this, this newspaper publication. So he now has concrete proof that he can act on. And uh, apparently his followers by this point are also beginning to feel, you know, he's not able to give them anything. He's a leader who doesn't appear to be able to lead and who doesn't, you know, have much to offer. So on a bunch of counts, I think Burr decides that this is a moment to act. And he seizes upon the word despicable and um, sends a, a ritualistic sort of opening letter for an affair of honor to Hamilton, asking him to explain his words. And, and that begins the, the sort of, I guess what you could call their final confrontation. Um, but this extended series of letters in which um, each one, you know, Hamilton doesn't respond well to the letter. Uh, he tries to basically explain how the word despicable isn't really as bad a word as one might think. <laughs> you know, what is despicable between gentlemen anyway? And then sort of ends by lecturing Burr a little bit. Uh, and Burr obviously is insulted on both parts of by that letter uh, and insults Hamilton back, basically saying Hamilton's not behaving like a gentleman. So each one in the course of their correspondence insults the other enough that they really can't back out even if they wanted to. And ultimately Burr asks Hamilton to apologize for um, everything negative he said about Burr from throughout their entire career, knowing that, that there's no way Hamilton can do that. And that will just sort of force Hamilton's hand and they can sort of get on with their affair of honor. Now, it's important to note that political dueling in this period is not about killing. 
It's about proving that you're willing to die for your reputation. And there are many, many political duels in which, you know, no, either nothing happens or someone gets shot in the shin. You know, so it's the, when you kill someone in a duel of this sort, you really make yourself vulnerable to being attacked for having sort of gone over the limit and you're a murderer and you're savage. And this is precisely what happens to Burr is that his enemies seize upon that vulnerability for killing Hamilton uh, and, and really work together to destroy him. I mean, it's striking that it's a, it's this gentleman, gentlemanly affair of honor, right? That that has to do with honor, and yet the line between that honor and and uh, infamy and certainly ungentlemanliness, uh, you know, is 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 maybe a foot to the left <laughs> or a foot to the right. It's true. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a pretty thin line. Yeah, but it's, I mean, the the point is that it's it's a theatrical proceeding, right? This is this is political theater, or it's supposed to be, right? So it's not deeply personal. Well, it is deeply personal because it can have you know intense personal implications, but it is also very much a public performance. It gets written about in newspapers afterwards. So so it's both at the same time. And. And just to cut, it's not legal at this point, right? I mean, obviously murdering someone whether when you shoot them is, is not legal also, but the practice of dueling, it was outlawed in New York State by this point, wasn't it? It right? was illegal in most so places, in, yeah. It, yeah, which is also interesting, I think. Right, and most interestingly, Hamilton was one of the people who worked for the passage of that law right. because one of his sons had been killed in a duel just two years before Hamilton's duel with yeah. Burr. And, of course, that's why the two parties had to row their way across the river from uh, Manhattan to Weehawken. But, of course, that's, you know, that tells you so much about that moment where the lawmakers are the ones who feel quite, you know, entitled to break the law. And, and right. as a matter of fact, <laughs> right. you know, after yeah. the duel, there's a cluster of Republicans in Congress who um, make a petition basically asking the governor of New Jersey not to prosecute Burr, and their argument is, well, we never prosecute people for dueling, you know? Why are you picking on him, you know, despite the fact that it's illegal? And that, I mean, that really tells you a lot. Now, there's, a, there's some debate about uh, what the intentions were, right, behind the, uh, uh, behind the participants. Right. Um, you know, personally, I don't think that Burr was trying to kill Hamilton, um, and there are several reasons I think that, but one of them is um, he writes a letter not long before the duel, and his second asks him about a doctor. And, and Burr says, oh, we don't need doctors. Let's just get it over with. So I really think he just thought it was going to be a typical duel, which is you go out there, you do whatever you do. Someone gets shot in the shin, perhaps, and then you've proven your point, you've redeemed yourself, and things will move along more swimmingly from that point. We do know that Hamilton – had no intention of shooting Burr, right? We have we have him saying that. He said, actually, interestingly, he says, I will not shoot at Burr the first time. <laughs> you know, but if there's a second exchange of fire, then I don't know about that. But the, All bets are yeah, off. Yeah, that's it. But, the, but yeah, he, he says he, he has a religious scruple and he, he won't fire at Burr. So it wasn't just a case of bad aim on Burr's part. I I don't think he was trying to kill him. I really don't. Um, and, you know, I there's no 
you know, afterwards, there's a lot of newspaper attacks on him, you know, suggesting that he like, you know, clapped his hands in glee and, you know, that he was oh so happy <laughs> that he, you know, finally gunned down his opponent. But there's really no indication of that kind of thing at all. I really just think that was not an expected outcome. Um, I, I think there's an account at the time that suggests when Hamilton falls, Burr's first impulse is to run towards him uh, and he's pulled away. So I, I think that's an unfortunate outcome. You know, I, I don't think that these dueling pistols were the most accurate of weapons. Um, and who knows, you know, Burr talks about later what he called the flurry of mind when you're standing on a dueling ground and you're staring at someone who's about to shoot at you. Um, you know, who knows sort of how, how you act. He doesn't fully remember in that moment what happened or what he was thinking. So how is Hamilton remembered in the aftermath of his death? Well, in the immediate moment, um, you know, his reputation, although he's a duelist and that's a problem, um, his reputation fares rather well because he leaves this heartfelt final statement about why he felt compelled to duel and why, you know, he... It, he didn't want to shoot at Burr and his, he didn't want to die because of his family. And it's, you know, Burr uh, is, you know, totally resentful of this because he really sees this as like the final kick from Hamilton, you know. <laughs> you know wow, you really, you took me all the way down. Um, so, you know, initially uh, his reputation, Hamilton's reputation, you know, does not suffer very much. I mean, religiously speaking, I suppose in sermons it does somewhat, but um, he's really, you know, widely mourned in the in the long term it doesn't seem to hurt his his reputation too much i mean clearly there is a a long noted battle between historical fans of hamilton and and jefferson and and to a lesser extent um gallatin and and hamilton as well but hamilton has a place um amongst the the founding fathers that is not afforded to anyone else directly outside the rank of, of presidents in the early years of the Republic. How, how might we characterize the development of Hamilton's historical legacy? Oh, uh, peaks and valleys. Yes. No, I think Hamilton is really, I think, appropriated by people in his time in a slightly different way. It seems like in sort of the antebellum period, Hamilton recedes from the public imagination. But in the progressive era, the late 19th turn of the 20th century, he is really resuscitated and admired by many leading progressives. I mean, at the highest sort of presidential level, Teddy Roosevelt is a, is a huge fan of him. Henry Cabot Lodge writes this lengthy biography. The progressive journalists like, you know, Walter Lippmann and Herbert Crawley, you know, adore him and, and write about him sort of at length when they're looking into an interventionist economy, when they're looking into internal improvements. And then he seems to recede again you know, in in the wake of sort of 20th century current events. And now I think he's sort of coming back. Well, he, and he has, he, I'd say he has a couple, one or two other peaks and valleys I'll, I'll add in to your, your, I guess, both peaks and valleys. Um, you know, after the Civil War, he, he's flying high because he's the prophet of nationalism. So he, there's a peak and then, you know, he has a valley and then Nora, as you were just saying, then he, he rises again and the stock market collapses and he falls with it. And then he, he has another little peak uh, during the Cold War because he's the prophet of capitalism and then falls a little bit. And, and then just as you were saying, now he's, he's having another moment. Well, I think that the, probably the defining feature of Hamilton's legacy as it's developed is the way that it's 
inextricably linked and inversely related to the legacy of Jefferson. Generally, it's been the case that when Jefferson's legacy is experiencing a peak, Hamilton's is experiencing a valley and vice versa. And we've seen that even into the 20th century and now through right to the present day. Hamilton is enjoying this moment right now with the biographies and the musical. And Jefferson has been in quite a deep valley for the past few decades, often being dismissed as either inscrutable or uh, a hypocrite with many negative uh, biographies about his relationships with women and, of course, his life as a slave owner. Yes, even in death, Hamilton can't escape the specter of political conflict with Thomas Jefferson. So we seem to end the podcast by pointing out the benefits of making powerful enemies, at least if you want to be remembered. (laughs) Um, As you can probably gather from the rest of the conversation, we could continue to talk about Hamilton and his legacy for hours. And whilst we won't continue to talk for hours, um, please do listen to the forthcoming JuntoCast Extra episode, where we will be discussing Hamilton's current moment and the recent interest in his life and his biography in the last few years in greater detail. So please do look out for that in our podcast feed. Other than that, that's all the time that we've got for our discussion today. So I'd like to thank my fellow participants, Michael Hatton, Roy Rogers, Nora Sleminski, and Joanne Freeman. As ever, if you'd like to read more about the topics that we've discussed today, there will be show notes up at our website, thejuntocast.com. If you like what you've heard, please drop us an email at thejuntocast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at Juntocast, and you can come and like our Facebook page by searching for The Juntocast. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us for the next episode. Yeah.